This is Muslim Footprints, an opportunity to deep dive into Muslim civilizations through the ages, accompanied by some of the best experts and academics in their field. My name is Aisha Dyer. To speak of Ali ibn Abu Talib, peace be upon him, is to speak of the quintessential spirituality of the Islamic tradition. That's how Reza Shah Qazimi starts his book, Justice and Remembrance, Introducing the Spirituality of Imam Ali. Reza is a senior research associate at the Institute of Ismaili Studies, specializing in comparative mysticism, Islamic studies, Sufism and Shiism. He's well known as an expert on Imam Ali, which stems from the success of that book. In 2001, um, there was a conference on Imam Ali and the, the question of justice. And I submitted a paper based on Imam Ali's letter to Malik al-Ashtar when he was appointing one of his companions as the governor of Egypt. He wrote a kind of letter of appointment and it can also be seen as a kind of ideal constitution for how to administer um, a territory, in this case the, the, the richest, most populous part of Imam Ali's caliphate, the, the empire of Islam, was Egypt. So it was a very, very important province. And he wrote this detailed letter uh, to Malik al-Ashtar. And I, I submitted a conference paper based on that. And then there was another conference which was on contemplative practices in Shia Islam. And I wrote a paper on Imam Ali and remembrance and dhikr Allah, the remembrance of God, and submitted that. And then about a year later, an editor at the institute called Kutub Kassam, he said to me, Reza, you know, if you put those two conference papers together and a, a chapter introducing those two themes, you've got the makings of a book. And so I wrote the book. And it was published, and by the grace of God, it did very well. It sold very well. The first edition sold out very, very quickly, and the um, it received two prizes. Ali was the cousin and son-in-law of Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him and his progeny. He was the fourth of the first four caliphs of Islam, often referred to as the rightly guided caliphs who led the community in the wake of Prophet Muhammad's death. And he was first in the line of Shia imams. According to Reza, Ali, this seminal figure of nascent Islam, interiorized the two fundamental sources of Islamic spirituality, the Quran and the words and deeds or sunnah of the Prophet not just the outward imitation of the Prophet's actions, which Reza describes as a reductionism all too prevalent in our times, but the spiritual substance of them. 
It's the interiorization of the twin sources of the Islamic revelation that constitutes the spiritual path of Islam. Whether you are a Sunni or a Shia, to the extent that you are um, in, attracted to the spiritual path of your tradition, whether it's a, a Shia, Irfani path, following uh, your guides within that tradition, or a Sunni Sufi, following a Sufi path, the fountainhead of the spiritual doctrine and the mystical method, the fountainhead of all the Sunni Sufi tariqas and of all of the Shia Irfani spiritual paths, they all go back to the Holy Prophet, needless to say. But who is the person after the Prophet through whom these paths are transmitted? All of the paths have this in common. They have Ali and Abi Talib at the head of all of the silsilas, the chains of transmission. Often when I make this point, someone interjects and says, no, but the Naqshbandis have a different silsila. They go through Abu Bakr, not Ali. And the answer to that is that according to the Naqshbandis themselves, there is a golden silsila, a silsila adhahabiyya, which goes back to Ali. Let's call him what the Prophet called him. Um, the Prophet said, Ana Madinatul Ilm, I am the city of knowledge, wa Aliun Babuha, and Ali is its gate. So all Muslims of all different schools of thought and stripes and colours and persuasions, all of them accept that the Prophet said this. I am the city of knowledge, and Ali is its gate. Whoever wishes knowledge should come to the gate. I spoke to Reza from London. The book Justice and Remembrance is divided into three parts. The first part is an introduction to Imam Ali. The second is a dissection of a letter that's attributed to him, to Malik al-Ashtar, one of his loyal companions, about the concept of justice. And the final part is about remembrance, about translating the theory into spiritual practice. We'll talk about all three parts. So let's start with the first part, an introduction to Imam Ali. Now, our main way of knowing the spirituality of Ali is from his words. No other companion of the Prophet has anything approaching the corpus attributed to Ali. And the most important of these is Nahjal Balagha. Uh, the Nahjal Balagha, it, it, it literally means the path of eloquence and often mistranslated as the peak of eloquence. And it's a compilation of Imam Ali's khutbas, his, the discourses and sermons that he gave, and the letters that he wrote, and many of the aphorisms that he uttered. So those are the three parts of this compilation, which was made in the 11th century. 
um, based on earlier sources that had recorded the oral transmission of the sermons and the aphorisms and had put together the uh, the letters that had actually been uh, copied and, and transmitted from generation to generation. There are also other compilations. There's one called The Choice Selection of Wise Aphorisms, and that's about four times larger than the Najal Balaga. And it consists of thousands of sayings that were transmitted orally for the first few generations, and then in writing. And one of the reasons why uh, Imam Ali's sayings were so extraordinarily faithfully transmitted is because he was able to speak spontaneously in rhyming prose, in what's called sajja, so that uh, in one of his most famous responses to uh, a question about whether he had seen God, he said that, that La tudrikuhul oyun bi mushahadatil ayyan walakin tudrikuhul qulub bi haqaiq al iman. Eyes cannot see God according to outward vision, but hearts can see God according to the realities of faith. That when that faith is deep enough, then these haqaiq, plural of haqiqah, spiritual reality, spiritual truth, ultimate substance of that in which we believe, these haqaiq, in the plural, these mysteries and realities, they cascade from the height, the celestial heights of that reality in which we believe and which corresponds in depth to our faith. So the deeper our faith is, the higher our vision is, the more exalted that object of faith is, and it, it as it were, bestows and reveals these mysteries that enable the heart to see God, as opposed to the eyes, the outward eyes, the vision. So the beauty of this is you can imagine hearing this in a, in a in a context where this is someone who just asked the imam, uh, possibly in the middle of a khutbah that he was giving, just as it was, stands up and says, Oh, Ali, have you seen your Lord? Have you seen your Rabb? And Imam Ali said, I would not worship a Lord whom I had not seen. Lam a'budu rabban ma arah. And then the man says, his name was Dhitlim, a very quick-witted man, they say. And he said, so how did you see God? And then Imam Ali gives this incredible answer. La tudrikuhul uyun bimushahadatil ayyan walakin tudrikuhul qulub bihaqaiq al-iman. That haqaiq al-iman and mushahadatil ayyan they rhyme perfectly, you see. And so when people heard that, they were, it, they were electrified. They were you know, completely amazed that the most profound meaning was expressed spontaneously in the most perfect rhyming prose. And so they would never forget something like that. Ali was among the first followers of the Prophet. 
even though he was a kid, nine or 10 years old. Does that tell us about his relationship to the Prophet Muhammad or about him as a seminal figure in Islam or both? Yeah, well, it's both. It's because he was the first cousin of the Prophet um, and later he became the son-in-law of the Prophet when he married Fatima, the daughter of the Prophet. Imam Ali was, as a boy, um, he was taken into the Prophet's household um, because his father, Abu Talib, was having a difficult time in what was a drought. The drought had afflicted Mecca at that time. Even in those days, they were very, very close. The Prophet was renowned even before he was uh, raised as a Prophet for going to uh, retreats in this mountain for long periods of time, up to 30 days. And in those periods, Ali says, I was the only one who would go and see him while he was on those retreats. I would go and take him food and drink and so on. This was a tremendous privilege for um, Ali to actually have seen and experienced the, the Prophet's um, spiritual discipline at first hand. That period of, it's called in the sources, Kana Yatahannath, which means the Prophet used to go and purify himself spiritually, Yatahannatha. And that spiritual purification as is seen by the Sufis as um, basically the, the prerequisite for entering into the total receptivity to the spirit of revelation. That kind of retreat, what now in the Sufi tradition is called khalwa, to go into a cell and, and empty yourself of the, the world and of your ego and to just give yourself totally to the presence of God in prayer, in invocation, and so on. And more importantly, perhaps, than that blood relationship is the fact that, well, from the mystical point of view, we have many, many sayings from the Prophet indicating that he and Ali were born, ultimately created from the same light, from the nur, which was one in its essence. And one can interpret this to mean um, that, when, for example, when a person asked the prophet, when did you become a prophet? He said, Kuntu nabiyan wa kana Adam bain I was a prophet when Adam was still between the water and mud. He was being needed by the hands of God, as it were. So the Prophet is saying that he, his reality, what's called the Haqiqa Muhammadiyah, preceded the creation of the material realm and of Adam as a being compounded of clay and spirit. And Imam Ali has a similar saying that he was a wali. He was a saint before Adam was was created. Now on to the second part of this episode, the letter to Malik al-Ashtar, governor of Egypt, and what you describe as the sacred conception of justice in it. Can you first explain the principle of justice 
and why we should care about it over other concepts? Well, one of the names of God is the just. Um, in fact, there are two, there are two or three. Um, but Imam Ali says that I bear witness that God is al-adl, is justice. He doesn't just say al-adl, the just one. He says that the divine reality is absolutely one with al-adl, with justice. And that he then defines this uh, principle, this divine quality, uh, as follows. He says that justice is that we should put each thing in its proper place, to give each thing its proper due. That is the essence of justice, to put everything in its proper place. And that has an application from the highest metaphysical level through to the intellectual, the moral, the ethical, all the way down to the social and the political. It has an application that runs all the way through. And the essence of that capacity to put everything in its proper place is, according to Imam Ali, given to us in the first testimony of Islam that says, La ilaha illallah. That's the most important principle according to which we put things in their proper place. There is nothing that I um, worship or that I love or that I revere or that I try to conform to that can possibly take the place of the absolute reality, which is um, the, the source of all of the divine qualities. It's Allah. It's the absolute to which all these qualities revert and from which all of the qualities, not just justice itself, but all of the other divine qualities of, of mercy, of love, of peace, of generosity, and also of anger. One of the attributes of God is that he takes revenge. He's the wrathful. He is al-muntaqin, the avenger. He takes revenge. And how can we understand that aspect of the divine in relation to ourselves um, by manifesting an appropriate degree of, of wrath, of taking revenge upon our own transgressions, upon our own vanities and conceits and pride and, and prejudices and pretensions, all of these things within us will become the subject of our anger if we are engaged upon the, the, the path that leads to justice, the path that's called the, the, greater, the greatest spiritual struggle, al-jihad al-akbar. It doesn't mean that we take revenge upon other people who have hurt us or anything. It means that we take revenge upon those parts of our own soul and that we fight against those parts of our own soul which have themselves put themselves in opposition to God, who are rebelling against God. And those elements of the soul that rebel against God are the ones that have a tendency or predisposition to affirm, that say, I am this or that. I have done this, or I am a good person. I am a strong person, I am a beautiful or intelligent or whatever it may be, this I am 
is what the first part of the shahada has to get rid of. La ilaha illallah. You negate. The first part of the shahada is called the nafi, the negation. La ilaha. There is no little God. There is no little divinity. Illallah, except the one divinity. And that little divinity is this ego that wants to establish itself as the idol within our hearts that we worship. Instead of worshipping God, we're worshipping ourselves. And that's the highest, the, the one unforgivable sin in the eyes of God, shirk. It's associating some other, some partner alongside God. And that some other thing, that partner, is our own ego. Every time we think we have done something good or great or noble or whatever, that is where we have to remember, la ilaha illallah. And here one can cite the saying of Jesus in the Bible. Why people saying to him, you're good, oh master, you are so good. And Jesus Christ himself said, why do you call me good? There is only one good, and that is God. And that is another way of saying la ilaha illallah. There is no goodness but God's goodness. And so this question of justice can be applied not just in terms of society and polity, economics, even ethics and and morality, but at the highest level, spiritually and mystically. So let's get into this letter to Malik Alashtar, which is about how to rule justly. It's guided by this quest for conforming as perfectly as possible to God's will. Do not set yourself up for war with God. That's the warning from the Imam Ali. The letter covers all aspects of governance. It speaks to the character of one who has power. And pride is said to be the worst of vices because it's an arrogance of a greatness that belongs exclusively to God. It talks about moral consciousness, the importance of being compassionate towards one's fellow human beings, of identifying with the most powerless, the common folk when it comes to material wealth, and of acting impartially. Then there's this notion of power as an unavoidable duty which is also Plato's attitude to power. This idea of noblesse oblige. If one has been granted the blessing or the grace of knowledge, together with a clear sense of justice, a correspondingly greater obligation is created. So one's duty to God increases in proportion to the privileges or the graces bestowed. And then, It's quite practical. It talks about the different classes of people in state and society who each have particular rights and duties. It's kind of the cutting edge of justice in actual practice. Scholars and sages should be engaged. Judges should be paid well. Farmers should be attended to more than the taxes collected from them because if there's no cultivation, there's no tax. Merchants and craftsmen should be left in peace as they bring diverse benefits to society while keeping their vices in check, such as hoarding or miserliness. 
And then there's this quite lovely reference about those most in need of justice and how they should be helped in a way that God may excuse you on the day you meet him. So the idea there is to be kinder and more compassionate than might be called for. And that also demonstrates that it's only when this world is seen in light of the next world that a fully just attitude emerges. When you look at all of these instructions that Imam Ali gives to Malik al-Ashtar, about how to deal with the, the scribes, the secretaries, the soldiers, the farmers, the religious minorities, the judges, and who to appoint as the head of the of the army, of the judiciary, and so on and so forth. It's a very detailed letter of administration, apart from other things. But all the way through, Imam Ali is interspersing, he's, he's punctuating all of these instructions with this spiritual aeration. What is the spirit that should be animating these people while they're carrying out their, their duties, their obligations? to the state, to the people over whom they have charge. And that spirit is constantly the spirit of devotion to God. And so strongly is this emphasized that at a certain point, um, Imam Ali tells Malik that after telling him how he should deal with all these different strata of society and people, he then says, however, Devote the best of your times in the day and in the night to that which brings you closer to your Lord. And then he adds this very important, um, it's a kind of existential imperative. Baliran min badanika ma balaha. We go back to that word that we started with, balar, natural balaha. Balaha means eloquence in the ordinary sense, but the rooted word balaha means to attain maturity, to come to to full maturity. So when he says baliran min badanika ma balah, it means taking your body to the the furthest point of possibility of its energy, whatever energy you have in your body. Take it to the maximum point. Take it as far as you can go. Take your body to the spiritual point of exertion in your prayers, in your devotions, in your meditations, in your invocations, in your recitations. Everything that brings you closer. It brings you close to God, one of whose names is Al-Qarib. God is close, but we have to do an act we have to try, we have to exert ourselves in this yataqarrab in the, it's reflexive it means i'm bringing myself closer to al qarib and that means prayer that means making an effort and that means night prayer that means really trying to stay up at night for hours not just saying a quick prayer and then go to bed and then sleep for you know, 7 8 hours and then wake up and do your next lot of prayers. That is a million miles away from the spirituality, the spiritual discipline, the ascetic practice of the Holy Prophet. And as you probably know, 
the prophet divided his day of 24 hours into three parts, eight hours for work, eight hours for rest, and eight hours for prayer. And so in those eight hours of rest included not sleep only, but the time he spent with his family. And the, the Quran gives us a very, almost a mathematical account of the Prophet's own night prayers. And the, there's a surah called Muzammil, which means that uh, the one who's enwrapped in his mantle. And it's a very early surah. The Quran speaks to him and says, your Lord knows that you stand in prayer close to two thirds of every night or sometimes half of, of the night and sometimes a third of the night. So what we're given here is a kind of range where the prophet is giving us an example of what kind of fraction of the night, what kind of portion of the night should we consider to be really following in his footsteps as regards prayer, that we should be spending two, three, four, five hours in the night. If we really want to follow the prophet's spiritual practice, that's what puts gives us a, a a kind of gauge a guideline so imam ali is telling malik al-ashtar in the letter that give the best of your times to what brings you closer to your lord in the days and in the in your nights so we see here that the head of state the head of the what was going to be the the, the province of of egypt as the charge for malik because of course he never got to Egypt. He was poisoned on the way by Muawiyah's agents. So this letter is really much more of a letter for us than it was for Malik. It was something for all generations subsequent to Imam Ali's time who could look back to this letter and say, well, how can we best conform to these, this, these beautiful instructions which contain the highest ethical ideals, the most practical political um, injunctions, all within the framework of attachment to that which leads us to God inwardly. The rest of the episode continues in just a moment after this message. On behalf of the team at The Ismaili, we'd like to thank you for tuning in to Muslim Footprints. We very much hope you're enjoying this show and would be grateful if you could leave us a review on your favourite podcast platform and subscribe so you don't miss our next episode. We appreciate your support and look forward to bringing you more valuable content in the future. Now, back to the show. Now for the final section of the book, how to become just. The way you describe it is quite wonderful, that it comes from an inner substance such that justice flows. How do we practically do this, connect with this inner substance? This is where you go from theory to practice. That the Prophet said, "Likulli shayin sekalatun wa sekalatul qulub, dikrullah." 
For every single thing, there is a means of polishing. And the polish for the hearts is dhikrullah, is the remembrance of God. And then reinforcing this message with an emphasis and an accentuation on light is Imam Ali's saying, and this comes in uh, sermon number 213, I think it is in most editions, a sermon in which Imam Ali simply begins with uh, a fragment from the Quran, which says, رِجَالٌ لَا تُلْهِيهِمْ تِجَارَةٌ وَلَا بَيْعٌ عَنْ ذِكْرِ Virile human beings, I won't say men, because rijal here doesn't mean men in the gender sense. Rijal is spiritually virile human beings. Rijalun, la tulhihim tijara. There are spiritually powerful, virile human beings who are not distracted from the remembrance of God by trading and business in the world. Imam Ali, is just, he just mentions that fragment of the verse which comes immediately after the verse of light, the ayat al-nur. It is very, very significant because he knows that, the, that his listeners would appreciate that. Ayat al-nur, or verse of light. In the name of God, the compassionate, the merciful. Allah is the light of the heavens and the earth. His light is like a niche in which there is a lamp. The lamp is in a crystal. The crystal is like a shining star, lit from the oil of a blessed olive tree, located neither to the east nor the west, whose oil would almost glow even without being touched by fire. Light upon light, Allah guides whom he wills to his light, and Allah sets forth parables for humanity, for Allah has perfect knowledge of all things. When he starts at that point in the following verse, all of them will know that this has something fundamental to do with the mystical symbolism and the metaphysical principles that are symbolized by the degrees of light from the flame itself to the oil that is being burnt, the oil of the olive, neither of the east nor of the west, and of the wick, the lamp, the glass that surrounds it, and then the niche within which the lamp is placed. All of these symbolize differing degrees of unfolding of the light in the cosmos, but also the differing degrees of inward orientation to that light within the human heart, going from the the breast, the sadr, into the heart, the qalb, into the fu'ad, the inner heart, then into the lub, the inmost, and then into the ruh, the spirit, and so on. So there are inward degrees that unfold and outward degrees that manifest. And all of this is is um, evoked by the symbolism of the light verse. And he knew when he mentioned this fragment that comes after the light verse that all of those people who knew the Quran to any degree would immediately have in their hearts uh, 
heightened awareness of how is this that the imam is going to speak about, how is it related to all of those metaphysical and mystical principles that are there in the light verse? So he cites that fragment and then he says, Inna laha ja'ala dhikra jila'an lil qulub. Truly God has made the dhikr, the remembrance, a polish for the hearts by means of which the hearts come to see after being blind and hear after being deaf and yield in submission after being resistant and rebellious. And what is the method, the actual performance of the dhikrala, this remembrance of God? Allah, 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 Allah. That's the normal, the standard way. There are other names of God that can be invoked. But when we recite in the Quran, it's metaphysically identical to the invocation of one or other of the names of God because it's God's self-revelation. And this is the important point that distinguishes an authentic spiritual practice, a spiritual discipline of methodic invocation, whether it be the Jesus prayer in Christianity or the Nembutsu in Amidist Buddhism or Japa Yoga in the Hindu tradition. All of these traditions have this in common, that they, yes, they focus on a a word or a phrase and they repeat it, repeat it, repeat it. And this repetition is what's polishing the heart. It's it's getting rid of all that bad karma, of accumulated actions, of bad actions, of forgetfulness, and so on and so forth. It's getting rid of all of that. But what is the source of its efficacy? What is the source of its capacity to get rid of all these things and to enlighten us so that we see after being blind and hear after being deaf and so on with our hearts? What is it that imparts this operative efficacy to the invocation? Why is it that, you know, some guru doesn't come along and say to us, well, you know, if you just keep repeating the word tree or stone or this or that, it'll have the same effect on your mind. It'll enter your mind of all other distractions and you will get enlightened. Why is it that doesn't work? Yes, it can have a certain kind of psychological but superficial efficacy in therapeutic terms. But why is it that they can't actually lead people all the way to sanctity, to actually being wise and enlightened human beings and ultimately saints for those uh, who uh, are given uh, that grace as a result of the uh, sincerity of their efforts in the spiritual path? Because of one single factor, one variable, and that is called sultan, authority. That the, the Quran says very, very clearly that these names of these idols that you worship, these are nothing but names in here illa asma un sammeitumuha antum And what is it that they do not have? These names, they have no sultan. God has not put any authority, any true spiritual power 
any theurgic energy that will enable the person who invokes those names to come closer to the named, to the ultimate reality. So all of these names of God in the different religious traditions have this in common, that they are not names made up by human beings. They're names revealed by God as means by which we can come close to him, to her, to it, to the ultimate reality that's above and beyond all gender, all specification, all limitation, all relativity. You make a really interesting reference to the Greek philosopher Plato, who engaged in this practice and referred to it as gazing upon the good. How does Imam Ali's spirituality relate or compare to Plato's philosophy? In the Platonic tradition, what was being registered was a a paradigm of philosophical engagement with ultimate reality, which was one with absolute beauty. So what Plato and Socrates had inherited from the earlier traditions, the Orphic and Pythagorean traditions, was much more a way of life called philosophy, which in the Greek means love of wisdom. The philosophical approach is a way of life. And when someone comes to you and says, I want to learn philosophy from you, you have to put that person through a whole series of tests in order to evaluate whether he or she has the predisposition for the exacting disciplines, moral and spiritual, that the life of philosophy will require of that person. And only after many years will the reality of philosophy alight upon the the souls of these people who are seeking it. And the way they seek it, the best, the most uh, direct, most powerful way of actually becoming a true philosopher, of being a lover of wisdom and embodiment of wisdom, by embodying the beauty of that which you love, it's to agathon, it's the sovereign good. And when Plato talks about gazing at the sovereign good, and that this is the way in which you can most deeply and faithfully imbibe the beauty of the sovereign good with all of the qualities and what he calls the archetypes, the eidos, those qualities of the absolute which become the archetypal paradigms of all good and true and noble and beautiful things on earth, to imbibe those archetypes that are present in to Agathon, in the sovereign good, to imbibe the best possible way of doing that is to gaze at it. Now, how do you gaze at that which is above and beyond all form? And this is where, in the book, I've argued that what is implicit in Plato is made explicit by Imam Ali, namely the way in which we can look at the beauty of God. And what that means to actually see the beauty of the sovereign good in every single phenomenon all around us. Imam Ali famously said, I never saw a thing without seeing God. 
And this comes in a series of sayings where the first three caliphs were reported to have said, I never saw a thing without God before it. The second said, God after it. The third, God in it. But Imam Ali said, I never saw a thing without seeing God. And this is, if you like, Ihsan. It is, Ihsan is often translated simply as virtue or, or, or doing good or but actually the literal meaning is making beautiful this is how this is the source of all virtue of making your inward and your outward self beautiful your inward intentions and orientations your outward actions comportment and dispositions all of that should be beautiful and then you are coming close to virtue Muslim Footprints is developed and produced by Kalima Communications in partnership with The Ismaili. Thank you to Leila Sharif for narration. Our theme tune is Mullah Mama Jan, performed by Black Heat. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and tap the follow or subscribe button so you don't miss the next episode. I'm Aisha Daya and you've been listening to Muslim Footprints. Mm-hmm.